to tell you one more time. I and I will survive. I and I will gain and maintain the things that the rude boy must maintain.
Hey there, hi there, ho there, kids. This is Rockcore introducing the next edition and the first of 2015 of the Rodcast. Today we have interviews with Ernie C., the lead guitarist and main mastermind and co-creator along with Ice-T of the band Body Count. We also have an interview with drummer Jason Bittner of Shadows Fall, who also just completed a European tour and I think a record too with the band Flotsam and Jetsam, who the knowledgeable of you out there might know as the band that Jason Newstead came from before joining Metallica. So we hope you enjoy these interviews. Uh, got a little commentary, of course. And as always, we have music. And speaking of which, let's get right to that right now. Yo, check this out. I got a hoe from the east, I got a hoe from the west Got a hoe that likes a jacket off and rub it in her chest I got a bitch from the north, got a bitch from the south Got a bitch that likes to suck it long and hold it in her mouth I got a bitch with hair, a bitch with none A bitch with a knife, a bitch with a gun A bitch with ass big as a TV set And there's a bitch over there, hey, the one I'm gonna get But yo, but maybe not, she may not like me though No sweat to a vet, I'll rock a sister though Word I rock the whole damn herd Fuck them all and leave them on the curb I got a bitch with a mink who rocks a fat gold link Who likes to fuck me with her ass upon the kitchen sink I got a bitch with tits, a bitch with ass A bitch with none, but hey I give her a pass And I love them all, I love them crazily And they love me back, that's why they stay with me So if you're having girl problems, I feel bad for your son I got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one Hit me 99 problems and a bitch ain't one If you're having girl problems, I feel bad for your son Got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one Got a bitch that's old, a bitch that's new A bitch who loves velvet and the color's blue I got a bitch that's fat, a bitch that's built A bitch all the titties give out powdered milk I got a bitch who's funny, a bitch who ain't A bitch that can sing, a bitch who can't I got a bitch that loves fucking on an airplane I even got a bitch off Soul Train. I got a bitch who rolls ragtop bins. Long ends. I got a bitch who's broke as a bum. But she's the most fun. I got a bitch that plays piano, a bitch you don't. A bitch that dances naked, a bitch that won't. A bitch who's short, a bitch who's tall. A bitch who burns my phone out with priority calls. And I love them all. I love them crazily. And they love me back. That's why they stay with me. So if you're having girl problems, I feel bad for your son. Got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one. Hit me! 99 problems and a bitch ain't one If you have a girl problems, I feel bad for your son Got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one I got a bitch that loves a G She'll fuck you right after she fucks me I got a bitch that loves boats I got a bitch that loves handcuffs and ropes I got a bitch that's fast, a bitch that's slow A bitch that's a virgin and a bitch that's a hoe A bitch that lies, a bitch that's true A bitch who's a man because y'all bitches too I got a bitch that's cool, a bitch that's hot A bitch who loves rap, a bitch who loves rock A bitch who's lost and one who knows where it's at she gets up under me and purrs like a cat I got a bitch that runs, a bitch that walks A bitch that yells, a bitch that talks A bitch that's dirty, a bitch that's neat A super fine bitch that I knocked it to swap me Then I love them all, I love them crazily And they love me back, that's why they stay with me So if you're having girl problems, I feel bad for your son Got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one Hit me 99 problems and a bitch ain't one If you're having girl problems, I feel bad for your son Got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one This is Rodcore, 
And we're getting into the latest edition of the Rodcast here. We got an interview uh, with a righteous cat and a great guitar player uh, featured with his band Body Count on their latest album, Manslaughter. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you the great and marvelous Ernie C. How you doing, Ernie? I'm doing good, Rod. How you doing today? Man, I cannot complain a single solitary bit. So let me start with this. Oh, great. Well, let me start with you uh, getting your endorsers in. I always like to make sure they get shouted out uh, if you can remember most of them off the top of your head. You know, uh, are you today? Yeah. Today, uh, I, I think, I mean, as far as, as what, I, I endorse a lot of different things. In the clothes, Versace, what? Let's say, <laughs> we're going to leave Versace alone. Let's start with the instrument. What's your main acts of choice? Right now, I'm, I'm playing Schecter's. Um, I'm playing just uh, Schecter guitars. And I take, uh, they send me this one, uh, I think it's a, 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 Lomas, a Jeff Lomas model, and it's left-handed. And I just, you know, wire up one pickup on-off switch. It's real simple. Maple neck. I have rosewood neck, but I always say maple neck for the past 40 years. Uh, my first guitar was a, a Strat back in the 70s and had a maple neck, so I stuck with the maple necks. I'm using EMG pickups on it, you know, and I got stuff on the floor. Jimmy Dunlap's my friend for, for 20-some years. Anything Dunlap I use, picks, walls, you know, or strings, everything's Dunlap. Nice. And what about your amp setup? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm using 5150s now. You know, I'm using Eddie's amps. Uh, I use the, the PV model of it, but I have, you know, Marshalls. I, uh, Tony Omi gave me some, uh, what are those things he uses? Uh, I can't even think of what they're called. Um, uh, just can't think of what they're called. But I, have, I, you know, I have a bunch of amps, but right now for the world, I'm using 5150s. They, they seem to be working and dependable and consistent in the sound. I can, you can get them all over the world, so that's what I'm using as far as amps go. Okay, now let's jump back a little bit. I got you. You're pretty much your basic setup here. So I'm going to jump back uh, because, as you know, you're in a, a, a fraternity that should be larger of brothers that play rock guitar. So I got to take you back and ask you what got you into, first of all, playing period and specifically into playing rock and roll. Well, you know, growing, I grew up, you know, during the 70s, and I, I uh, played Parliament and all that kind of stuff. And then one day, someone came to me with some, some Deep Purple and some Led Zeppelin, and I started listening to it, and that's basically what happened. I just started listening to it. It had more opportunities to play guitar, but, you know, like, I, I, you know, I have my early R&B resume, you know, so, I, I, you know, I um, just incorporated as much rock as I can into it. You know, I listen to groups that were, you know, high energy rock. And so that's, that's basically what happened. I, I love Peter Frampton. I, I played in high school. I went to Crenshaw High in Los Angeles. I played with a talk box in high school. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I play, you know, with the Gap Band and bands like that also. So, Wow. Okay, so you got a lot of R&B influence still in the rock and roll that you do. Oh, yeah, I grew up listening to and playing with uh, everyone from Dennis Edwards to Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and everything like that and in between. Okay. Now, uh, of course, I got to ask you, how did you hook up with Ice-T and, and how did Body Count get going? Well, I, I, you know, I went to high school with Ice, so I've known Ice 40-plus years. Wow. Um, yeah, so we, we were 
friends in high school. He was doing his thing, which was robbing jewelry stores. There's no secret. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I played music back in high school. And then later on, when he got out the Army, you know, he, he started um, – Rapping, you know, and it was new. It was, you know, this is the '80s, like the early '80s, and he came to to me and my drummer who passed, and said, "I'm doing this rap thing, and you know, can you guys help me out?" And we we, we didn't have a concept of what it was. We listened to Run DMC and stuff like that, and we were like getting our footing in, and 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 so uh, I was in early movies with him, Electric Boogaloo, and all those movies with him, you know, doing stuff like that. So. Uh, it was just a natural progression. He, he, and he went to New York and met with Africa Islam and started that. And then, you know, that's basically where Body Count came from. Body Count came from us not being able to play any more music on ICE's rap records. That's where Body Count came from. Got it. Just to play music. Wow, okay. Now, for the first time when you knew, for example, you were going into the studio to actually do a record, is body count. I mean, what was your thought at the time? How did it feel? I mean, were you excited? Were you nervous? I mean, what was it like? Well, the first song that we did was a, a song called On With The Body Count. It wasn't really body count. It was just me and Ice, and we got Moose to play the bass, and my Rick, who's passed, most of them had passed. They were, you know, always in my, we were kind of like a band. And it was like, we put that on, on his first, on his record, his OG record, one song on his OG record to see if people liked it. That was in 1988. Right. And, put, and then people liked it. So then we're like, Warner Brothers was like, y'all should do a record. So we did a record, you know. Initially, I was going to be the singer for Body Count and all this kind of stuff. But I didn't want to sing. I just wanted to play guitar. And Ice was there. He used to come through. I sang at some shows. He came to the shows and stood around and just get the band, you know, the, the people hear us, to come out to hear us. And I said, why don't you just sing it? And he sang and worked. And, you know, and that's the way it's been. It's worked fine. Wow, okay. But, I mean, when you went in to actually do that record, was there any, did you have any idea it was going to blow up the way that you did, or were you were you even thinking about that, or were you just like, oh, it's cool, we get to do a record? I mean, what was your life like at that time? When we started, you know, we put that one record, you know, we wanted to be a punk band like the Ramones. That's what we thought we were going to do. <laughs> right. Record year, and, you know, that's what it was going to be. You know, just sell 50,000 records. And at that time, you know, when people were selling millions, like we do fifty thousand records and just play, it'll be a great thing. And it was a it was supposed to be an avenue for me to do other things, playing guitar. You know? Right. But this came into my baby, and you know, so that's why it, it became. You know. Now, when that record did blow up, and everything started to change in terms of like the the shows and the money, um, what was life for you like at that time? I mean, the transition from just being kind of like, well, I'm in it. But like, oh, now I'm really in it. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a whole lot connected with that. The band, you know, we did that song, Ice's record, and then uh, in '91 we we were gonna we started a record to do a body count record. That's three years, well, two or three years later, we started doing a body count record. And I knew, um, so we did 11 shows in L.A. You know, after we started the whole band, because that original song was just a three-piece band, a rhythm section. Right. We did that song, you know, as an afterthought on the Ice T record. Like, one in the morning, we went in and started recording. We finished at six in the morning. We did all, like, in one take. We just played it all live. Wow. The first song. So, uh, 
so then we decided to do a record, and then I knew Perry Farrell. I, you know, I hooked up Perry Farrell. You know, I was a messenger, and I met him, and he took us out on Lollapalooza. Right. That helped us out, you know, playing a Lollapalooza at that time. And what was that festival like? I mean, that was your first festival, right? Oh, yeah, that was first, of course. That was the first festival that we've been on. And the first, the first festival, anything like that. But we did Ice Tea. I played Ice and we did a thing called a few years before that called the Gathering, Gathering of the Tribes. Right. And they had the club and, and Queen Latifah. But they only did like three shows and went bust. And a lot of producers came along and it worked. You know, William Morris put it together, you know, uh, Mark Geiger and Don Muller over there, you know, Mark, the guy who put it together, not, not the vice president of uh, William Morris, you know. So, right. Uh, they put it together and it worked. It, it sold out, you know, and we went around the country. And that helped out. That laid the groundwork for a record that came later. Wow. So by the time you guys recorded the record, you already had, you went in reverse. You went and, and did a big tour first and then recorded. So it wasn't quite as big a deal, uh, I'm assuming, when you went to the studio, like no jitters. No, no what, what happened was we test marked those songs. We played cocktail for a year before people heard it. We had no complaints. But we, we test marked those songs, but uh, we were able to uh, go. Oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> we, we, we were able to play those songs before we recorded them. So we knew what songs were. And what songs didn't work. So that was, was good about that tour. Right. Wow. So the record's done. You put the record out. Mm -hmm. um, then comes the reaction to Cop Killer. Now, I mean, they say all press is good press. That came like almost eight months to a year after. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. it, came, it came a lot later. It came a lot later. In the record, that, that only happened because it was an election year, and, and they had no platform. That's what happened there. Got it. Got of it down in Texas, and there were friends of um, the, the uh, a councilman there, some kid. You know, it's, it's like home invasion. You know, that's what we, we have the album years ago called Home Invasion. Yep. Right, kids, suburbs start listening to you know um, black and raised music. You know, so that's what happened with that. Cocktail was just blown out of proportion. But the thing about it was, people think it, it, by that song coming out, it really killed the momentum of the record. It didn't help us. That's what I was wondering, because they always say even bad publicity is good publicity. Uh, would you agree or disagree with that? I, I disagree with it. You know, just, it, made us, it made us known. It gives us respect. You know, we get a lot of respect. Right. But... We would have made a lot more money if it would have stayed out. The record would have sold millions, but it only sold like uh, 950000 Then we pulled it, and the next record sold 275000 or something like that. Right, right. More if it would have stayed out there. MTV had this big thing. We were going to give away equipment and all this kind of stuff. They dropped us like a hot potato. I just had a, a development deal with, 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 with things. They, they dropped us. Warner Brothers, you know, we, we left Warner Brothers, you know. We were going to be big at Warner, you know. We left them, you know. So it, 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 it was a double-edged sword. But right now, you know, 20, 25 years later, we still get the respect. People hear the name body count, like body count. It, it, it makes them, you know, shake their head, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, I know I was excited when I heard about the new record coming out. 
But uh, along the way, when you're thinking about life, you know, if you've lost a couple of friends in this band uh, since it's been around. Uh, what do you think they would say about the direction of the band now? And do you think they're they're kind of smiling down, happy at what's going on? Right. I'd be happy about that, I'm sure. Right on, man. Much. It, it, it hasn't changed that much. There's it, different ways of producing the records. It's the same notes, you know, the same attitude. Now, how do you feel about the production of Manslaughter against some of your other body count records? And, and I know everybody wants to say the, the newest record is their favorite and the best, but you got a few records under your belt now. So for you... Um, both in terms of how you're playing, how it was produced, and, and how much fun you had in the studio, what would be your favorite body count record? Oh, you know, the first record is always the best record. I produced that record. It, it was, you know, it was like trial and error. We did a lot of things that were trial and error. We wanted to make the record boom like an 808, so we had a 32-inch subwoofer that we played the drums through. Wow. A lot of trial and error that we did on that record, and it, and it worked. I mean, it, all it is is a punk record, you know? Yep. So it's, supposed to be, it, it's not supposed to be produced really well, and now this record sounds really slick, like, as it should after 25 years of doing music, when you make a slick-sounding record, you know? So that's what that is, you know? I, we, couldn't make, we couldn't make that record again, that first record. I couldn't go in and sound that junky right now in my life, you know? Just because everybody was like, y'all sound terrible, you sound junky, you know? It, like, punk bands, yeah. Uh, frankly, your first record sounds more punk. It's nothing against Green Day now, but your first record to me sounds a lot more punk than any Green Day record, uh, in my opinion. And uh, just just listening to that first record, the energy on it, because I, I go by the energy of a record, and that record had like a powerful energy on it. You know, it, it, it was like everything that we wanted to say at that time was right. I mean, you can play that record right now, and it, 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 the things are still there. Top Care is still a relevant song. I mean, right. you know, it's like we went out last year and played on a, a Mayhem tour. We went out with a Ben 7 so I like those kids. I like them a whole lot. And uh, so some of these kids haven't heard our band, you know, the 25-year-olds. And our, our first record was out when, you know, when they were born. So they were listening to the song, and like, they come to me later and like, this song, Cop Killer, we really like that. It's like, wow, what do you know? Like, like, it's a new song. Like, you know, like, we can relate to it. I'm like, yes, you can, because it's the same thing that's going on now, you know? Not that it's even worse now or any better. It's just more cameras, you know? Well, you guys are about to hit the road uh, at a time when there's more incidents uh, being recorded with police than ever, and you're going to be playing that song nightly. Uh, I'm assuming you're playing that song in your set, right? Yeah, this is the closing song. We always do it. We've been doing the same song. It's the closing song. We we always do it like that. But yeah, we're going to play. We played it last year. We went out all summer last year and played it. Now, does it feel weird that, that 25 years later, the song is like more relevant than ever? That people can, you know, People young enough to be your kids or grandkids can relate to it. That is. That is. I mean, uh, it's just that, uh, you know, that song is just so much on point. It was so taken from, you know, the Rodney King and all that stuff. 
Right. And I did more of the same thing. Now we're getting kind of, you know, just overwashed with it. We know it goes on. So now what are we going to do about it? Right. (laughs) We know it goes on, you know. We've got to have police. Yeah. We've got to have police. Because if we don't have police, you're going to have people more out of control than you're going to have it. So it's got to be some kind of medium to get to. Right. Um, and going back to some of the other songs you've written, like one of the favorite songs for me off the new record is Back to Rehab. Um, now I talked to you about that before and that song you said is not about you, but who do you, is there any specific person that the song is written for or is it just, uh, generally speaking for somebody else? was kind of over-exaggerated, you know, we put over-exaggerations in the song to put emphasis on them, but it's about a friend of ours, you know, but that's a, a, a song just about everyone just getting straight, you know, like on our first record, I wrote a song called The Winner Loses, right. about a guy that's on crack cocaine at the time, he, I had a friend that's on crack, he's still alive today, he's going through the same struggles that he went in, you know, 20, that was 26 years ago, that song was on a demo, before that, that I sang, so that's 27 years ago. So, you know, it's that was just a, a, a good song. We also wrote a song on one record called Street Lobotomy. Right. And drugs on the street, and you know what it does to your brain. Wow, okay. Uh, well, that's definitely one of my favorites. I love the riff in that song, and uh, when you get to the bridge, some of the, the arpeggiated stuff you're doing, too. Now, are you playing on the new record all the guitars, and then you have a rhythm guitarist live, or is the rhythm guitarist yeah, also on the record? I, I played on the record just because Juan wasn't there at the time. Now Juan's in the band. I think he'll play on the new record. I'm sure he'll play on the new record, but I, I played all the guitars on that one. We, you know, I just, you know, play, you know, this is the way it was. And now we have Ron in the band, who, who has new guitarists. You know, he's from a band called Evil Dead, and he's Colombian. So that, 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 I got a lot of flack, and people who like, body count the black band. I said, you know, I try to explain that to people. No, it's not. It's just that we were black because we were all friends from high school. That's right. It wasn't any kind of formula that I was looking for, you know what I mean? Just a coincidence. Y'all, your friends were black, and y'all started a band. I got to tell you, man, the current lineup uh, sounds pretty dang deep. I mean, in terms of the musicianship, I I was actually uh, shocked when I saw you guys a few months ago in L.A. because you never know what to think, you know, when there's new people coming in, how it's going to sound. You know, you you have different expectations, but it, it sounded real heavy and powerful. 
you know, I, I, I produce records, so I, in this time, I'm not producing a record. I'm just putting the band together and just, I really don't, I let Vince control more of the, the band critiquing and stuff like that, but who's the bass player. I just kind of sit around and listen to the overall and just make sure everything's right. And, and, and I've noticed it's the right lineup, it's the right people, it's the right personalities. You know, I always say in, in commercial bands, as I consider us a commercial pop band, we're a pop band, we're, we're, we're popular, we're not, we're not, you know, a heavy musicianship band, but we're a pop band. It's a lot of personalities involved, and you have to have the right personalities to go along with the instruments to make the music sound right. It's not just, you know, like we couldn't band together like Return for Forever, which right. is a lot of you know, great musicians, you know? But you, this kind of band, you have to have the right personalities to jive right. Guns and Roses, they're, you know, you know, always have to be the best players, but together as a unit, it has to be right. And this is the best unit that I've had since the beginning of the band from 25 years ago. I feel good about it. You know, there's been some other combinations. I've got five combinations of this band. And I was just consistently trying to get it right. Right. Now, right. But I got to tell you, man, you know, you're talking about musicianship and whatnot. I mean, you realize uh, you're a pretty amazing guitar player, right? Oh, I mean, I, I produced Tony Iommi. I started right. with Tony Iommi and Carlos Santana. So, I, and, and they, you know, they said, you show me this, and I said, show me that, you know? So, right. Gonna, you know? Yeah, I know. You got you to gotta at least have a little ego about that, because I, I think uh, the... I love the interplay, especially between you and Will and Juan live and, and the bass player, too. But the three of y'all is something that was that struck me as being really um, technically proficient and emotional at the same time. Uh, hopefully I'm explaining that right. But it just sounded a lot deeper than than I've heard the band sound before. Okay, now in regards, going back to some of the former members that have passed, um, I had a chance, uh, and I haven't told you the story before, but I had a chance uh, some years ago to uh, ride back from Las Vegas to L.A. with Moose Man because we had a mutual friend we were hanging out with and we met. And uh, that was an entertaining ride, to say the least. I mean, we went from Vegas to his house and then down to the hood, too. So uh, we, we had a lot of chatting to get done, and it seemed to me at the time that uh, fame was not everything that he expected it to be um, in both good and bad ways. Now that you've had you know some years to reflect and you're enjoying a little bit of success now, um, what does all this fame stuff mean to you? Uh, when, we first, when we first got into this thing, it was, it was really cool, you know. 
it, 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 it made everybody amplify what they are, you know? So right. I, I was really nice. Rick was really a gangster. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, amplify what they are. So now I'm just kind of settled into, I, I get enjoyment from when, when kids come to the show and they're like, you know, I met you. I give them a guitar pick or, you know, just little things like that or just, you know, make it special. Cause I remember, you know, people like Ernie Eyes who made things special for me, you know, but you have to become settled into who you are, you know, into the success and not the ego-based everything, you know what I mean? Yeah. To that point. All right, now here here's a big question for me because you're about to play some pretty major festivals in Europe uh, with some pretty big acts. Um, now, both, I would say, coming up and in times past, are there people you knew you were about to share the stage with where you were like, okay, I got to burn tonight because I got to show them? Not, not really. I never got into that. Uh, I just want the band to be good. I, I, I'm to a point, and I've been to a point at this point for years and years, that I know that we're good. Right. So all I have to do is just do what we do. Even on my worst day, I play bad shows. Everyone still enjoys the show. Our bad is still good. You know? Right. It's not ego space, but that's the way it is. Even the band sucks. It's not <laughs> the audience enjoys it. The cues are there. There's the songs we cut off. I, I you know, it, it was going bad. And, and, and we played wrong. I played out of key. You know, these things are bad. But, you know, it's, that's, that has, now that's ego. Right. <laughs> that's my ego <laughs> coming in there, you know? Because <laughs> I get upset when things are right like that. But now I've learned how to relax and, you know, just play. All you got to do is show up and play. I mean, I'm not going to outdo Kiss by playing because they don't come with 10 tons of uh, pyrotechnics. Right, right, right. I'm playing going to get me so far, you know. <laughs> Hey, well, you know, it's not like body count exactly as a boring show now. I mean, y'all come up there and y'all y'all got a little thing going too. And we have fun. I, I, I think it's a party. And join in. Right. You know, participate in this party because we're having a good time. And I hope you will be too. You know, that's, that's our attitude. I'm here to play. I'm having fun. You have fun out there because that's your job. I'm doing mine. Got it. Got it. So, in terms of your record label situation, um, you know, you've been through a couple. How do you feel about your, your current label, Sumerian Records? I like them a lot. We're going to do another record with them. Okay. As a matter of fact, we're going to start working on a record on the bus. It's going to be a whole... Right now, we're going through all different kinds of, you know, ways to do a record and optimize Ice's time that he has. So, we're going to be together for three weeks. On a bus, we're going to ride a record on the bus. We're going to bring all our recording equipment and, you know, have some amps on there. When we're rolling along, we're going to come up and play guitar and do the riffs. That's the way we do it. Come back in the studio, play them loud, then record them. That's the way we do records. Wow. Okay. So in terms of his his uh, work schedule, um, you guys, I'm assuming, only have X amount of time during the year to tour, correct? Yes, right now, that's the way it is. We, we have summer, it's like summer vacation. So this is a summer vacation. You know, we all load up the buses, and we're going to go to Europe this summer. Last year, we toured the United States. This year, we're going to tour here and do a record. 
Okay, now for the future of Body Count, you just said there's a record coming. Um, can we look forward to more U.S. stateside shows next year? Yeah, we're going to do some, uh, we can do uh, spot dates. We're going to do some weekend spot dates maybe a couple times a month or something like that. And probably tour next summer in the U.S. or, you know, or something like that. Why not we just plan it by year, you know? Well, it sounds like, I mean, watching uh, the direction you guys are going and, and seeing the amount of shows you're playing, um, people, especially fans, are definitely uh, excited in a way they haven't been before because uh, it looks like y'all are going to be around a lot longer this time and we won't have to wait uh, so much time in between records, which is cool. Right. You know, that, that, that had to do with uh, what happened was, you know, I lost the first thing you lose your, your high school friends and then I lost D-Rock, the last one that we lost, and I, I started drinking too much. It kind of took me off guard, and it, it was just sad when you lose all your friends. I used to move to New York, so I was out here by myself, and, you know, the, the, the motivation from the band comes from me, you know? Right. Rick was always my motivation. He was always like, you know, get up and do this and do this, and when you lose all your motivation... You, you know, you lose direction. So I lost direction. I started drinking too much. And then about five years ago, I said to myself, I said, okay, no, I'm not wanting to get down, but I was just found myself in a place I didn't like. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with this place. So I said, okay, it's time to play. So I, I, I cleaned myself up, quit drinking. And I said to myself, I'm going to do a record. And I called Ice and said, I'm going to do a record. He said, let's do it. I walked into Sumerian. Somebody set me up an appointment. Ryan set me up an appointment. That's why I was in the bed. Now that you're sober, mm -hmm. um, what is that atmosphere like, you know, when you're obviously backstage, especially at festivals, and there's still a gang of people running around, you know, shit-faced drunk, and, and they may not know you're sober. I mean, what is, does that, any kind of problem for you, or are you so far past that now, it's like you do you? Uh I mean, people make their own choices. I still have my drunk friends. I still have my sober friends. You know, I, I'm not. You know, that, I'm not judging no one. You know, that's not. That's a thing you're supposed to learn in sobriety, not to judge people. You know, so I'm not judging no one. Do your thing. I mean, whatever. You know, do whatever makes you comfortable. I mean, my bandmates, they know what's going on. They're damn near sober. I mean, you know, <laughs> just about. You know, no one drinks anything harder than a beer. Right. You know, Now, I got two more quick questions for you. Um, as you may or may not know, I interviewed uh, your drummer, Will, uh, a few months back. And as a musician, uh, you know, I'm, I'm touring myself these days. And one thing that's fascinated me, uh, uh, that continues to fascinate me, is when I hear the story about when people got the first big check. Now, when you got... For, for any aspect, whether it be body count or something else, 
the first big check, like from publishing or for a show or whatever, what was it like when you saw them numbers on that paper? Yeah, from Sire. What was that? He's from Sire Records, correct? Yeah, Sire Records. Seymour Stein came. Now, Seymour in his life signed Madonna, Cedo, The Talking Heads, and Ice-T. Right. So he came, he came to our, um, came to see us play, because he, you know, he's heard that Ice is in the band, he wants to sign the band, so they wanted him to see it, so he came up there, and he just said to me, he says, how you doing? You're going to be very successful in this business. Sorry, go ahead, man. I didn't mean to interrupt. Hey, but that, I bet that was nice at the time. I had a wife and two kids. <laughs> well, maybe not so nice then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, here is my final question for you, man. Um, you know, you've had by uh, most standards a pretty, especially in today's uh, record environment and the way the, the industry is now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of bands and a lot of individuals can't claim to still be working and thriving and successful and, and not only just releasing one record, but already with a, with a mind to, to go on and release uh, another one almost back to back. When you look back at your whole career, uh how do you feel about everything that's gone down and where you're at now? I mean, it, 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 it's what it is. I mean, um, the industry has changed a lot. I mean, we used to sell, uh, when, when our first record came out, we sold 154,000 copies in a week. Now we sell 100,000 copies. It's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. The industry has changed a lot, you know. The only way you make money right now is from licensing, merchandising, and, and touring, you know. So records are not 
that important. Records are just a vehicle to put the name out there, so the name will still be out there. Our record, you know, sold whatever it sold, 100,000, 50,000, 20,000, whatever it sold, but it's, it's got 1.8 million downloads. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? So that's kind of, it, it, it makes it, that's just a, an advertising thing. The record, the record is just for advertising the band so we can go out and play. Got it. And it's working because you're doing some great gigs. We're doing, we're doing big shows. I mean, you know, we're playing the big shows. I mean, we could keep on doing this. We have the time. We could, we could play all year long. Right. You know, we, we keep this thing rolling. One thing I, I, I have to say is one thing. We're playing uh, a festival in uh, Poland, and we're headlining over suicidal tendencies. And I thought that was pretty interesting, considering we're covering their song. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man, any chance, uh, you know, you might get a, a collaboration there happening on stage? You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. It hasn't been talked about or anything like that. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. We, we like Mike. We know Mike forever, you know? Right, and that's a righteous cover right there. The way you guys did that cover, and uh, particularly the way you did that video, was that was brilliant. sir wow man well then uh i think that's about gonna wrap it up my man i really do uh appreciate you uh sparing the time uh for for those of you out there you know i like to keep it real and uh ernie blocked off some time for me yesterday and and uh family issues screwed it up so i do appreciate him uh allowing me to bump it to the next day and and get this done you know i understand that completely all right, my brother. Well, this again has been the Rodcast with Ernie C. from Body Count. Uh, you heard the man himself. You can look out for another new record next year from Sumerian Records. Uh, but there is one right now. And even though we like to look at these things as promotional tools, you still need to get out there and get it. It's called Manslaughter. It's available at uh, any record store you can go to. Or you can sit your butt right down in front of the computer and download it. Uh, at a fairly reasonable cost. So get that record. It is an excellent, excellent, excellent you. record. Uh, and yeah, thanks for your time, man. And the new record will be Bloodlust. Bloodlust? I don't know. I used to sit with that title. So. <laughs> that, that title, right? You gotta think about titles. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. You heard it here first. Bloodlust coming in 2016. And uh, thank you again, Mr. C. Hey there, this is Rockcore taking a little break in the Rockcast to give a quick little thought or opinion on uh, one issue of the day, which appears to be the Confederate flag. Um, the funny thing about this flag thing to me is that it was just a decal on the, the guy that shot up the church's truck. 
people are talking about it as if it were the center and forefront of, of why he did what he did and that it was a really important symbol for him. Uh, when it appears from some of the photos they've released that uh, he identified with more uh, South African apartheid and Zimbabwe uh, pre-liberation. So that is very interesting to me that folks seized on the flag, which has been a controversy uh, for a minute in the South on and off over the years, but now has become a national controversy. Now, I've been asked about this flag thing uh, on social media and private emails and, you know, in conversations with friends. And my thoughts are on the Confederate flag that I just don't care if it's up or down. The primary reason being that the flag is a symbol. If you remove the symbol, you don't change anything about the people that want it up. Therefore, what point is there? Isn't the ultimate point to inspire people to want to take it down just out of the goodness of their hearts? Not to make people take it down or to say, that represents this for me. I don't believe in symbols. Symbols are false idols. Who cares? If you don't reach the people that hate or dislike you or feel a certain way about you, then taking away a symbol of theirs is almost pointless. It's kind of like you're thumbing your finger up at them and like going, nah, 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 look what I did. It makes no sense to me. On top of that, the amount of airwave space, TV programming, uh, magazine printing, and so on given to the flag uh, really to me strikes me as a distraction and I hate distractions and as I get older and see how they do this uh, everything seems to make more sense to me you know while all this is going on net neutrality is still an issue that needs to be addressed to me quicker uh, you have them burning black churches and <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but that's another issue. I'd rather focus on the manhunt for the person behind that, uh, which is a bigger issue than just that person waving a Confederate flag or not. You need to change that person's heart. You need to change their mind and make them not want to do these scandalous things. Uh, you have the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. Now, let's look at that. The girls still aren't back. Michelle Obama even held up a nice uh, sign with the hashtag bring our girls back or bring our girls home it was something like that you can google it and I wonder if she lays awake at night wondering what is happening to those poor girls and if I were any one of those girls I would be very upset that I thought there might be a hope for freedom for a second but it was reduced to a cheap hashtag and then forgotten when the next news story came up or when the media conveniently made you forget that they were still missing because the U.S. government and other governments of the world didn't want to do anything really about finding them. Uh, what else is going on? There's a lot going on in the world. There's, let's, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Uh, as a black man, of course I feel Black Lives Matter. But the black lives that matter to me aren't the ones who die from cops' hands. The black lives that matter for me are the ones that are dying in Chicago, dying in Detroit, dying in other cities by the hands of other black people. 
The black lives that matter to me are the ones who are genuinely trying to make it in harsh environments that can't get a job, not because they don't want to. Uh, a great misnomer about black people in the hood is that they don't want to work and they live off of welfare. And that's a lot of BS. There's a lot of people that want to work. There's a lot of people trying to pull themselves up. And there are a lot of people trying to overcome for their kids so their kids can make it out and do better than they did. But they're surrounded by gangs. They're surrounded by violence. They're surrounded by a lot of bad elements, and it's hard for a parent to try to overcome all that, especially if they're a second generation from a parent who didn't try or didn't want to try. So uh, those are the black lives that concern me. The people getting killed, even the people doing the killing, because there's another way besides gang life. Uh, there's another way besides street violence, and a lot of those kids or young adults who are in that life hardcore uh, doing all the shooting and gangbanging really don't know that. And they really don't have enough self-love to realize it. So if you touch them and you spark a revolution in them, you could change a lot. And that's my dream or that's my hope is to somehow, in some way, someday be a part of that. So those black lives matter to me. Um, I can't expect a cop who is on his beat every day and seeing thugs and criminals do inhumane sh stuff to each other. I almost cursed. I'm trying to work on my cursing. Uh, so those cops who see uh, people in the hood or even the trailer park or the barrio or whatever poor environment they work in, if those cops see the people there doing inhumane things to each other, uh, all they see is negative behavior all day. I can't expect those cops to magically focus on the people that live in those areas as human beings and expect to treat them accordingly. If you discipline the police when something goes bad, you're putting a band-aid on the real problem. The real problem is jobs, education, uh, self-awareness because black people at this point in the hood a lot of them aren't even aware of their contributions to America or the world as a whole they really see themselves as poor ghetto denizens and that there'll be nothing else so self-awareness uh, which falls under the education care category and just providing them with different outlets and ways to express themselves uh, there's a whole lot that could be done and put uh, as far as making those resources happen as well as <laughs> you got to look at not just working on the kids but the parents as well. The parents need help and need education and, and need a different train of thought as well. So those are the things I think about when I think Black Lives Matter. It's a whole different subset of thinking and I don't care if it's popular or if people disagree with me or whatever. That's how I feel. At any rate, we'll cut this short. Let's get back to some music and having fun and enjoying the broadcast. And hopefully uh, my views have not offended or pissed off anybody. But if they have, so what? This is Rodcore.
This is the Rodcast, uh, the latest edition. I'm not sure what edition this is. I'd like to say seven, so we'll go with seven for now. Uh, after what seems like forever, we have uh, worked a long time to make this interview happen, and it's finally going down, folks, between me and Jason Bittner of Shadows Fall. Uh, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Just, uh, just home and recuperating from the latest Flotsam and Jetsam tour, but everything is, uh, everything is good. And how did that go? That went excellent, actually. Um, it was my first tour with the band, so it was interesting to get out there and play with different people and stuff, and then go back to Europe and, and see all some old friends and stuff and, and meet a lot of new ones. So it was, it was a good time, dude. It was definitely, uh, it was definitely successful. You know, there, was, there were a few hard moments, like there, there always is on any tour. You know, not every show is great. Well, there was a few floppers here and there, but for the <laughs> overall percentage of it, you know, 92% of the shows were awesome. So... Now, when you say floppers, I know from a musician's perspective, it's a little bit different. I know nobody in the crowd is going to know the difference either way once that pitch starts going. Yeah, I, I only mean a, a flopper in the sense of, like, attendance-wise, you know? Ah, okay, got you. For, exa- for example, like, when we played, um, we played Bologna in Italy, and... <laughs> You know, all, all the times I've played in Italy, with regardless of what band it was, it always seemed like it was like a hit or miss situation. It was either awesome or it was just like one of those, oh man, we could have skipped this one. Right. Um, so, so this time we got to, to Bologna, and I had never played there before. I had never played that city before. Awesome hat, and they're like, oh yeah, well, last time we played here, there was like 12 people here. And that was like on a, and they said, that was on a Saturday night, and we're playing there on a Sunday. I'm like, Oh, oh wow! I'm like, I wish you didn't hear that little bit of information. Right. But, um, actually, we still did beat the crowd. I think it's about twenty. I think the number was twenty-seven paid. Wow. <laughs> but let's just say it was a, uh, it was a, a a less than stellar set. I mean, we still we still gave it our all, but like there was there wasn't even like that reciprocation back from the fans like you, you you know how it is like you get on stage and even if it's a small crowd a small crowd can be a deadly crowd it can right be, you know amazing i'd rather play in front of 30 people that get it and get into it than 300 that just stand there and look at you and they don't do anything between the songs and you're like are these people even enjoying this you know so yeah no i so, feel you completely you know we're trying to you know you know, get some energy off this, you know, 24-person crowd. This is not happening. We're just, like, looking at each other going, all right, so uh, we cut this last half of the set here or what? This is the last song of the night, thanks. Now, wait a minute. From from a guy that's just starting the tour, I'm just starting to hit the road myself, and I still get those crowds every now and again. So my question to you is, when you do get those crowds, are you then literally like, you know, let's play uh half a set shorter or, or cut it by a song or two or, or what happens in that situation for uh for the pros generally um i'll i'll say 90 90% of the time i've played one of those shows where we just looked out there and it's been you know desolation alley or you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, like uh there's more people working here tonight and there's more combined with all the bands than there are <laughs> I think I would definitely say I I know <laughs> no, no matter what band I played in bands I've filled in for bands I've been in I know when that happens the sharpie always comes out 
all right, what's getting cut first? Right. <laughs> it's it's hard not to ha- it's hard not to go in there with that mentality either. I mean, that really sucks because you're, you know, in a way you're kind of, you know, not not well, sort of cheating the fans in a way because you know, well, you just played all sixteen songs last night. Right. How come you're only gonna play, thir- how come you're only gonna play thirteen tonight? Well, yeah, but last night this place was packed from butts to nuts, and we had energy, and it was—it made us keep playing. You know, we're not really seeing that happening here tonight. So. Now there's another yeah. thing. Um, I want to take it back. We we kind of got off on that note, but I want to take it back to, uh, for me. What I've observed as a musician is if the drummer's energy ain't there, the whole band's going to suffer. I mean, would you agree? Uh, yeah, to an extent, I definitely would agree with that. And um, I've, been, I've been lucky in my career to be a, a highly energetic drummer and, and pretty consistent and all that. So that's one of the things I pride myself on is having the energy to go out there and drive that band, regardless of what band it is. Um, that's the drummer's job, is to propel the motion of the band. Right. And when you have someone who is doing their job night after night, I think it makes it easier for that for said band to relax into that mode of, all right, we got this. Well, all we got to do is just go on autopilot. You know, he's driving the ship. Right. So that's, that's one of the things that I pride myself on, is being able to, you know, just kind of like, you know, make the train run as smoothly as possible. Now, these days, I don't... You know, we're, we're going to roughly say you've been doing this at least, you know, 15, 20 years consistently touring. Um, how do you maintain and keep that energy up after all this time? I mean, what's your regimen? You know, I, I don't know. I think a lot of it, <clears throat> I think a lot of it, number one, was because I probably was conditioned for it more because I started, you know, I was a chubby kid, so I started working out when I was 16, and really got into going to the gym and then playing drums. So, so getting a fitness regimen, I think, helped you. But then, once you get on the road, that all changes. You know, when I was younger, like in my 30s, like when Shadows Fall was first coming up, we used to bring weights on tour. We used to have, like, you know, the jailhouse weight scene behind the trailer every every day. <laughs> right. As you get older, you can't do that. You can't put that pummeling on your body day after day after day. Now... I just use either resistance bands or really light weights to keep in shape. But I think that's one of the things that helps me. But one of the, the biggest thing that helps me is just playing every single day. Right. And and that's what, what keeps it there. But I'm, I'm also really, really consistent about, you know, I try to be as, as good with my diet as possible. And I do a lot of yoga and stretching and cardio and stuff like that to keep me in shape. And the biggest change that's happened since I hit my 40s was when I, I got sick with pancreatitis in 2012 and Ooh. stopped drinking after that. Um, you know, I haven't had a I haven't had a drop of alcohol now in almost three years. No, oh, congrats. So that's really thanks. That's really changed my energy level too. Like, it, I never had like bad shows on tour, but like without drinking now, I feel so much better on tour. It's not even funny. So I think. Not having that either, not not being hungover every day, but still having alcohol in your system and the, and the bloatedness and the not good for your liver and everything else. And touring number one is just doing a, doing a shitload on your body to begin with. Right. And have that night after night after night, like I did and our band did, and that was our lifestyle. You know, that starts to take a toll. So when that's gone, you go, holy shit! I didn't know I could feel this good on tour. Like I don't have to feel like absolute dog shit anymore. Oh, 
So now I'm just like moderately sore here and there from playing and just tired all the time. But I'm not hungover. I'm not feeling like shit. I'm not like, you know, two weeks into a tour going, oh, I can't wait for this thing to be over with. Now it's just like, you know, a day or two before it's over with. I'm like, all right, I'm tired. I've had enough. But, uh, you know, it helps a lot. So I have to, I have to do all this all this extra stuff anyways because as I'm getting older it's just not it's not getting easier to go out and play an hour and a half an hour and 45 minutes of crash metal at night okay now let's get to that I mean you know a lot of us that have been into thrash for for more years to count uh, you know when it was a young scene it is you kind of felt like it was a young man's music and it was almost hard as a young person to picture like actually growing old with the scene and bands still playing at a high level. Um, I know the guy that gets uh, the most criticism and, and trash talked about him is probably Lars Ulrich. Uh, having to do what he does, uh, and, and what other guys do, you know, uh, Dave Lombardo and, and Paul Bostaff and other guys uh, that play thrash and, and heavy metal. Um, what would you say to that criticism that people give to him? Do you think it's it's just or is it unfair or what? What would you say? Well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride the fence on this one because without I'm gonna preface all the good without Lars Ulrich, this scene would not be the drumming scene and the metal drumming and the metal drumming community and metal drumming for what it is would not be what it is without Lars Ulrich. He was the first guy to really bring faster double bass to the forefront because Metallica was the band that was better known. Now, yes, Dave Lombardo and Charlie Benante both did it better. That's my personal opinion. But without Lars, Lars set the set the bar for everybody and introduced a, a, a and basically kind of helped form a style of drumming. Now, many many drummers have gone on to surpass Lars in talent. Um, I'm not going to ever shit talk Lars because every time I've met him, he's been nothing but cordial and very nice to me. And I still, you know, he's still one of my influences and I'll still go to bat for Lars any day. Right. I always preferred Dave and Charlie more because they were more, there was just more to their drumming that, that made me go, holy shit, these guys are even better. And what I'll say about both of those guys is they've still maintained that same caliber of performance night after night after night and still play their parts correctly and everything else and I'm not going to say any more about that. I don't <laughs> feel that. I don't feel that Lars is, you know, it's where Charlie and Dave are at this point in their careers. That's just my own personal opinion though. And you mentioned Bo Staff too. Yeah, he's still slaying a two-hour, almost a two-hour Slayer set. So, that. You know, and that's night after night after night. So getting getting back to the roundabout thing that we were talking about and, 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 and growing old with this and the scene and this music, I never thought ever that I would be talking to you right now, talking to you today as a 45-year-old male making, well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> somewhat, make, somewhat making my living by playing thrash metal. I would have thought that you were absolutely insane and out of your mind because I personally expected to not be playing double bass and thrash past the point of 35. Right. Because that was my, that was my young, young, naive mentality at 16, 17 years old because at that point, you know, Charlie and Dave and Lars and those guys were only in their mid-20s. So we're like, 
Yeah, that's we're gonna be done with this by your thirties. You won't be able to be doing this forever. I didn't really start making a name for myself with Shadows Fall until I was thirty-two. Right. I, I expected to be like famous by the time I was twenty-two. I expected to be like you know thirty. That's like even like the twilight of my career. I I had pretty much given up before that kind of fell into my lap. So it's really it, it's really kind of strange to be going. And I watch all these bands, you know. All, all the older bands, like you, like you said, we just played the last show of the Splatsman Jetson tour was was a uh, Porter Rock Festival in Holland, and you know we played, and then Exodus was on our stage directly after us. Oh, nice! And I just sat there, and I sat there on my stage because I, mean, I love those guys to death. They're all they've all been my good friends for a long time. But I just always loved that band, and and Zetro is just like one of my best dudes ever. Okay. So I sat there in my sweaty stage clothes and just watched them chill for 50 minutes. I'm like, these guys are fucking almost 50 and they're still just destroying the place. Right. So I think that really makes it, I think personally, I think that makes it harder on the younger bands because, yeah, you guys are full of piss and vinegar in your early 20s, but uh, you're just going to, you're going to get your ass handed by these old quote unquote veterans if you don't get out there and, you know, and, and already amp that crowd up. Right. And I'm curious about, a, you know, bands like Dillinger Escape Plan, which is one of my favorite bands uh, we just got to play with. I, I want to see <laughs> when they get to be 50, uh, what that set is going to sound like. Or really any blast beat bands. Well, um, let's see. Mormon Angel's approaching that, sort of. Right. Well, at least Trey and David are. Um, but now with... Now with Tim Young leaving the drum spot, I I think they should. Well, what would be interesting would to be see if they ever, if they ever consider getting Pete Sandoval back to play drums, because then you would be approaching that band that's almost fifty playing Blackie. So I think Cannibal Corpse too. They're getting kind of close. Yeah, actually they are. They should be right up on the cusp now. Maybe two or three more years. So so that's the thing, and it's I think it's really tough. It's tough to say like how long you can play this music. I think that's why if you keep yourself together physically, it only helps you in the long run. Right. Yeah, you can store and whatnot, but at least if your muscles are a little bit stronger and you're used to a little bit more, you know, um, not torture on the body, but stress on the body, it'll make it easier to do that night after night. And I think also, too, it's muscle memory. Like, it depends on what you're playing. Now, if I was to go sit down and play today, like, I attempted in the morning to, to do a little bit of practice this morning, but I was just, like, too sore from... I had students yesterday. I went to the gym yesterday. I had some students, and I had just flown in the, in the morning from Toronto because I went to go see Rush on Wednesday night. Right, right. So, so uh, you know, I had... I, I I got up, I warmed up for a little bit, and I, you know, played about 10 minutes, and I played a couple of and tunes, and that's just, like, in my muscle memory now. And then I was going to, you know, start playing some other stuff that I hadn't been working on and that just seemed like it was going to be a little little tedious and tiring at the point so I was like you know what I think we're just going to rest this morning <laughs> take a break well here you go now we I've kind of jumped all over the place and forgive me for that um, I do right. want to go back and ask you uh, you know you said you were a chubby kid and you got into the drums what first led you to the drum set uh well, probably my parents' my parents' music collection between you know the stuff that my mom listened to was like all the you know the British invasion music and and most 
most importantly, two British drummers that stuck out, which were Mitch Mitchell and, and Ginger Baker, because I was listening to Hendrix and, and Cream. Right. But then my dad, my dad was a big Who fan, so I was getting the Keith Moon connection there, and he was listening to Yes. So I was hearing Bill Bruford, so it was a lot of the English guys at first. And then obviously I, you know, heard Led Zeppelin, another English, you know, bottom. Then I was big into Stuart Copeland with the Police, so most of my influences were. Were, were English drummers, but then I also got into my other, my dad's other side of music, which was like a lot of Southern rock and like Marshall Tucker Band, Leonard Skinner, Doobie Brothers, Allman Brothers, and a lot of, you know, 38 special, you know, a majority of those bands, double drummer bands. So I think that's what kind of drew me to, to drums more. Okay. And, but in... 1976, my father bought Kiss Destroyer by accident. <laughs> he thought the cover looked cool, and then he realized after listening to two songs that he couldn't stand it and gave it to the kid. So I think it was immediately after falling in love with that album that I wanted to play drums. I wanted to, that's what I wanted to do. Like Kiss made me want to be like, you know, a musician. Dude, Kiss strikes again. I have heard that from so many people. Yeah. But you know what? Ironically, I didn't want to be Peter. I wanted to be Gene. I wanted to be the guy that spit fire. <laughs> and the blood. Don't forget the blood. No, the fire was the first thing. Wow-wee. Okay, so let's say uh, who... I'm assuming your dad buys your first set? Yeah. Actually, it was kind of... You know, it's kind of funny, too, because it was... Uh, I got my first my first kit, which is like, you know, a... Uh, a Japanese red sparkle cheap three piece kit. Actually, this there was a Gretsch, but it was a snare drum, a tom tom, and a and a bass drum. One drum, one kick drum, one snare drum, one cymbal, a set of twelve inch really cheap hi hats. Like if you stepped on the pedal too too hard, they the bottom cymbal inverted, so you had to take the top cymbal off, pop the bell back out. Oh wow! <laughs> um, but it was cool. It was cool for a ten year old kid. But the thing was, my parents had just kind of split up like a year before my dad got my first kit. So it was kind of like <laughs> my dad, yes, technically my dad bought me my first kit, but it was my poor mother, God rest her soul, that had to listen to me beat the shit out of it. For the rest of the <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so your poor mom had to listen to the racket. So I'm sure your dad had no problem with it. No, he's like, oh, yeah, it's great. You're getting really good. Like, yeah, you don't have to listen to it. That's why. Oh, man. So at what point um, in your teens or, or in your early adulthood were you like, I, I could actually maybe make a living at this or I want to make a living? I mean, at what point did that come? See, the problem was I'm still trying to make a living at doing it. So I never <laughs> found that key. <laughs> uh, there's been years that I've made a decent living at this there's been years I've not made so decent living at this and now it's in the how do we still make a living in this era is the is the confundry of the day right um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting totally off the subject no no worries man um, uh, I never even really thought about it that way to be quite honest with you when, when I was when I was younger, like before I went off to Berkeley, like right after, you know, out of, right getting out of high school, 18, 19, it wasn't like thinking about making a living. I just wanted, I had this illusion. I guess we all had this illusion of what it was to quote unquote make it. Right. Because I, I, 
I, I know that my delusions of grandeur at 18, 19 years old of what making it <laughs> was then is, is drastically different from what quote-unquote making it is now. Because people ask me this all the time, are you, are, you, are you famous? And I go, well, I said, that depends on what circles you run in. I said... Because, like, my wife would say, oh, he's a famous drummer. I'm like, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I don't even know if I would say that. I said, yes, in the drum community, yes, my name is pretty well known, and I guess you could say I'm famous. Am I a household name? No. If you mention my band's name, are they going to shadow small household name? No, but if you're in the metal community, there's probably a 90% chance that you're going to know who I am. Right. But when I was a kid, I thought making it was, oh, they got a tour bus, that means they got money and all this, and blah, 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 and you get records out, and you get to go play all over the place, and then you realize when you're doing it, yeah, we got that tour bus out there. That thing's fucking how much this week? (laughs) Oh, and it's diesel. Oh, and diesel went up a dollar this week. Oh, oh, fucking great. So it's all that shit that you never knew about, and like, oh, so the record label just doesn't give you money to make a record. You have to pay it back? Right. Uh, Really? Oh, and oh, and by the way, now that used to be that used to be a, a thing of the past. It actually worked out that way because people used to what's the word? Oh yeah, buy records. Right. And you could pay the record label back and therefore profit. <laughs> Not anymore. They're like, okay, well, remember how your contract said your budget was going to be fifty thousand to record the record? Well, it's kind of changed. Now it's five thousand. So here you go, boys. Make it work. <laughs> Good Lord, wow. So, I just think, I think that there's, what I thought I was going to be doing, or the way I envisioned it, I guess I thought, is not the way it actually turned out. And there's no complaints on that, because, I mean, I, I succeeded in doing what I wanted to do, which was become a famous drummer. I guess that's to say, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, I, I wanted to become famous. I wanted to become well-known. I wanted to contribute to the drumming community. That's really what I wanted to do. Okay? So you've succeeded beyond your wildest dreams. Right. So, and, and I've done shit that I never thought that I would do or never achieve in a million years. So, am I happy with the way it came out and do I bitch about it sometimes? Absolutely, I do. But am I happy with the choices I've made? Absolutely, I am. Wouldn't change it for the world. Okay, now let's take it back again to... Uh, the first time you joined Shadows Fall, and you did your first tour. What I mean for for a starry-eyed kid, you're in, and maybe not a kid at that point, but you're still in. You're about to do this tour. It goes off. What is that whole experience like for you? Well, actually, it was it was nothing like that because I was I was a European touring veteran <laughs> when we went to when I did my first Shadows Fall tour. The first tour I did with the band was the, was the first European tour that they ever did. It was the first time they were ever in Europe. Oh, wow. I okay. Toured, I had already toured Europe twice prior with two different bands, Crisis and with Stigmata. Since I had been going to Europe since 97, and my first tour with um, Shadows Fall was, was uh, early uh, 2002. Yeah, early 2002. Um, January, actually. January to February. So... What happened was, they had asked me to join the band. Now, I, I had been playing with Stigmata for, you know, probably 
almost 10 years at that point. And, you know, we had reached the point of like, yeah, you know, we got looked at by Central Media, we got looked at by Warner Brothers. There was always these reasons why we never got signed. So after all that, you know, the touring around the U.S. in a van, doing the European tours here and there, I was done with that shit. You know, I was, I was 31 and I thought that I was going to be, uh, you know, quote unquote, would have made it by 25 at least. And here I am at 31 still trying to, you know, get a full five-week tour under my belt in the States. Right. So at that point, I just figured I was going to be working my computer job for the state for the rest of my life, which would have been fine. And then my, my mom passed away, and that did, you know, a number on me. So there was all this negativity that I was dealing with at the time. And I got a call from Shadows Fall, and they wanted to know if I wanted to try out. Down an audition, they were looking for a drummer, and with all the shit that I had going on in my life, I'm like, no. I said, I'm just not. I'm not into it. I said, I'm done with just rolling around in a van and just you know trying to get to the next level. I'm just, I'm done with this shit. I'm doing it way too long. So I passed on even coming down to, uh, to, to even jam. Wow. So a couple months later, they just called me back and like, hey, we still can't find anybody. It just hurt to come down and play. I'm like, all right. So I learned five songs off of One Blood. Went down over to Planet Z when Zeus still had a studio. And uh, we jammed. And then let's say the rest is history. Um, there was never anybody else coming back after after I walked into that room. <laughs> but, but that's just the way That's just the way that the planets aligned. I'm not saying that because my audition. So I was so amazing. That's not it at all. Um, it was just after I went down there, there was never anybody else walking back out the door. Right. So, so just so the chemistry was, was right and everything down. worked. What's that? Just the chemistry was was right and everything worked. Right, right, right. I mean, there were still, still things that we had to discuss, but but what came out of that day was, and I still, you know, I have the recording somewhere upstairs um, because Zeus actually, everything was mic'd up and uh, going through the studio. So we actually, somewhere lurks the uh, the first jam that we ever had as a band. Nice. Which, that would definitely be interesting to hear that. Um, so, so anyways, um, by the end of the practice, like, we went through the, the tunes a couple of times, like, once, and then I just asked, you know, is there anything that you, know, we had to concentrate on, anything I missed, or whatever, and, you know, they, they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, that accent over here, or whatever. We'd discuss whatever minute detail of it of the song it was and then try it again so you know after we played for a while <clears throat> they're like what do you think I'm like well what do you guys think well yeah well we you know I said look I said I don't you know where I stand on this I don't want to really make any commitments because I, I didn't so but they had this possible European tour offer that was lying on the table in front of them and they were just waiting to say yes, but they just needed to make sure that they were going to have a drummer to do the tour. Right. And I go, all right, well, and they're like, you know, we really want to go because I think, you know, we, we really would help spread the band name because we've never been to Europe before. And I go, oh, absolutely, it would, it would help you guys. And, and, and they said, and we've never been to Europe before. I said, yes, you got to go, definitely. I said, you know, as I said, I had already toured there two times already. Um, so what we agreed on was I was just going to see if I can get the time off from work, and I was just going to come in and do the tour, and then that was it. I was just going to come in and do the tour, and then they would go back to trying to find trying to find a drummer. 
And that's, that's really the decision that was made at that time. So, fast forward, you know, like a month later when we're getting ready to actually leave for the tour. We go down and we go to the, the syndicate, which was the, the building that used to house our, our management. Got it. And we go over to the bar that's next door to the syndicate because, you know, we got to wait till like, it's like two, 2 o'clock or so, and we got to wait till 4 for our manager to, to get the van to take us to the airport. So, as I said, remember, I'm supposed to just go do the tour, and that's it. <laughs> we, go, we go to the bar, and by the second beer, I just fucking turn around. And I was like, ah, fuck it, I'm in. <laughs> and, and there you go. I just... <laughs> See, I love the the business practice of how you did that. Yeah, you know, Very professional. The funny part about it too is I'm like, as I'm saying it, I'm like, you're supposed to wait till you do the tour before you just. Oh, never mind. All right. See? Now wait, I gotta know at any point during that tour where you like, oh fuck, I fucked up. <laughs> yes, yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> we joke about this all the time, though. Um, it happened. We were, we were, it was right at the end of the tour, and we had a, we had this fucking, this piece of shit camper that was, it was like a camper van for an old senior couple that they decided to give to, to a metal band to tour, tour around the European countryside for four weekend. Oh, man. Oh, so we managed to just like destroy this thing, and not even on purpose, it just fell apart from us being in it. That's, that's, really, that's really what it was. It fell apart from us being in it. Now, I look back on that and I go, oh my God, how the hell did we do that? This thing, this, my bed was was between the two bench seats of the table. The table folded down and folded underneath to be like the middle of the bed. And it used to fall, the support used to fall every time our driver would get like any bit more than like a tiny, tiny pothole. Oh, so the, shit, the man. Of my, falling out so of course every time like the bottom fell out these guys were all laughing their ass off it was just uh, it was I looking back on it now I, I'm, I got a smile on my face and I'm laughing about it but I'm like oh my god how did we make that whole thing for four weeks so anyway so this RV thing falls apart and we finally we get downsized into a van and at that point we had not enough room for our gear, so we had some of our gear being carried in Kitty's trailer, fortunately for us, because that's what we were opening up for. Right. And now we're downsized into this van, and we have nowhere to sleep, um, but luckily it's only three more days of this tour. So we're to the second to last night, and we decide to drive from Germany to Amsterdam so we can get into Amsterdam a night early, you know, and be in Amsterdam. Well... That plan falls sour because we just can't find a hotel anywhere, number one. Everything's booked up for whatever reason or another. We can't find a hotel. We end up in parked behind like the gas like a gas station rest area kind of thing. And but we were parked behind the gas station part of it. Right. And and who I, I gotta remember who got into it. Because it's so long ago now. I think it was 
it was Brian and Paul, maybe. It was either Brian and Paul or Brian and John got into it over something. Just I, I didn't know because, you have to remember, this is my first tour with the band. I've known these guys three weeks. I don't really know their personalities yet. And I don't know right. how they are on tour as a band. So, <laughs> two of them go at it. And I'm just sitting there in the van going, oh, shit, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I kept thinking. And then I pulled Matt John aside the next day. And I was like, um, yeah, it was Paul and Brian. That's right, because I pulled the quiet guys aside. So I pulled John and Matt aside, and I'm like, um, you know what happened in the van last night? Do, do I need to be, first of all, they're like, what happened in the van last night? I said, when Brian and Paul got into it. Yeah. Oh. I go, yeah, do I need to be, like, worried about that? Is, there, is that, like, a thing? And they're like, no, that's something. He's like, no, that was nothing, nothing to be worried about. I'm like, oh, all right. And then once I learned everybody's personalities and stuff, it, it, it absolutely was nothing. But it was just one of those things at the time I was like, oh, shit, I don't want to deal with this. Right. <laughs> Especially in closed quarters like this. I just started having flashbacks from other band memories that I did not want to have anymore. <laughs> Which is why I said, I don't want to do this at first. <laughs> wow. I wanted to get out of a situation where I would be trapped in a van while other people were fighting. That is no way to live for four weeks. And this was like the second to last day of the tour, right? Yep, yep. Wow. One of those, damn it, we almost made it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, at least they waited till the last moment. Yep, yep. That would have sucked if you were out there like week two or three. (laughs) We had a couple nights on this last Blossom tour where, where, you know, Someone or another wasn't happy with the performance or whatever, and it was—it was never anything against anybody else. It was always one of us just being too hard on ourselves. Right. So, but the fact is, you know, I've been already playing with all these guys now for you know six or seven months since we've been writing and recording the album and just practicing and stuff. So I already know everybody. So touring is just an extension of just being in Phoenix. So right. it wasn't like. It wasn't like I had to be like, oh, man. I had to be like, oh, all right, well, I know how he is. I know he's pissed off right now because he had a bad show, you know, or whatever. Man, so, okay, so right now, um, what's next on your plate? I mean, you just came back. Uh, what's going on with Shadows Fall at this point? Well, we were on <laughs> hiatus because Matt and, uh, I mean, uh, Paul and Brian wanted to basically stay home with their, with their young kids and see them grow up, which is totally understandable. Right. And meanwhile, you know, John's playing in Anthrax, I'm playing in Plots and Jetsam, and Matt's playing in that band, Act of Defiance, with Chris and Sean, who used to be a Megadeth. So the three of us have active projects still. But actually, um, we got a call and got offered this festival in Rhode Island in August that we're actually going to play. So we're going to piggyback the festival with two other dates on the East Coast. So actually, Shadows Fall is going to do three... U.S. shows this year. <laughs> oh, nice. And, and back into hiatus after that, because that after that, you know, John gets busy with Anthrax once their album comes out, and then the Flotsam album will come out either before the end of the year or early next year, so I'll be busy, and Matt's record comes out in August, too. So what, what comes next for that, I don't know. It'll be one of those things where, when, where we can get together and do something. We have some demos and stuff that we want to work on in August before, so we'll have time. We'll be rehearsing for those shows, so I'm sure we'll probably, you know, throwing some ideas around to for whenever that time comes. 
But it sounds like maybe you guys won't have time to really do anything together till 2017. Probably, probably, or at least, you know, middle of next year. Who, who knows? But, you know, that's the thing is, like, we're trying to, like, get some ideas hashed out now so we can, you know, get a game plan together, so to speak. Right. Wow, okay. Uh, Watson goes back to Europe in July. Well, we actually start in the, uh, in, on the East Coast in July. We play, uh, five shows on the East Coast from the 8th to the 12th, and then we head to Europe for another two and a half weeks. Right and on. come back from that, and my hardcore band Stigmata's finally getting their record out. That should be out by the end of September. We're just actually signing off on the mixes today. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what do you, with uh, Stigmata, is that all original membership, or? Uh... It's everybody who was basically the core band, which is the band that made the records. Got it. Um, we we left we uh we kind of parted ways with our our longtime rhythm guitar player Jason Kislap uh, like a year ago or so. Um, just a lot of stuff that that we we don't want to talk about. It it was a long it was a long history and, and a long well documented history for at least for this area. So everybody knows why. Um, it was just it was just basically we got to a point where we just couldn't carry on carrying someone anymore, and that's basically what it was. And we had to kind of sever the cord, so to, so to speak. But to replace Jason Sunkis, he got replaced by Jason Bordeaux, who was the guitar player in Stigmata, essentially before Jason Sunkis joined. Oh, wow. So you went full circle. Technically, yeah, yeah. We're replacing, we're replacing a non-original member with original members. <laughs> <laughs> That is cool, man. And then, uh, what's the plan for that project after you you get a record out? Well, we're doing we're doing two CD release shows um, up here, upstate in the Albany area. I think late September or early October. Okay. And uh, we have a couple shows lined up in Texas. We're doing a festival down there, and then we might be doing one or two more other shows surrounding that. Uh, and those are in November. And I think the first the first thing is to go to to go to Europe because the 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 record's going to come out over here, but basically it's more so for for Europe, for our, our label that's been waiting over there to, to finally get it because they just, they want to get us, you know, they want to get us back back out and to do at least a two, two to three week tour, but we they just keep saying, you know, we need the product first, we need the product first, we need the product first. I'm like, all right, well, let's get the product done, so. Jesus, man, so basically you're going to spend a lot of time in Europe this year and next year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm all right with that, you know. Um, I, I enjoy it, I enjoy it, so. I enjoy it now. I used to dread going over there because it was hard to, like, you know, communicate and stuff before everybody had cell phones and Skype and everything else. It was just, it used to be a pain in the ass, so. Now, what do you still do about the food, though? Because I I personally hate the food over there. I don't know how you feel, but. Yeah, it's it's an acquired taste, you know? And you have to, to sometimes break out, either bring your own food with you, because I literally pack opium protein powder to separate luggage every single time I go. My wife always busts my balls over. I'm like, look, I'm going to have breakfast on the bus when I wake up in the morning, regardless of where we are. Right. Pull over and there's nothing there, I'm all set. (laughs) That's that's all I need to know right now. So, yeah, I'm bringing my own food. Wow. But you start to expand outside the comfort zone and start trying different stuff in different countries, and eventually you start finding things that you like. Cool, cool. Now... Uh, I'm only going to keep you with a couple other questions. Uh, one thing that we did not cover uh, that seems kind of, you, you got to ask the guy this, is what are 
or who are some of your influences besides the British drummers now? Uh, who, who are some guys out now that you would look at and be like, wow, I can take something from that? Philip Fish Fisher. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing that in there because I know that one hits close to home. Right, it does. <laughs> uh, I, I love Fish. I love I love John too to death. I mean, they're they're both my friends, but it's just some Fish has always, always blew my mind, and, and we became friends and we toured together on Ozfest in 2005. Oh, right on. It was, nice to, it was nice to catch up with him last year at Nam. So that was it was that was that was really 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 cool to see him. Um, because I, I go through my stints with music. I, I don't, I, there's a lot of drummers that influence me now, like newer players, you know, like Kevin Harris is one of my favorite drummers. Steve Smith is one of my favorite drummers. Neil Pear is always going to be my favorite drummer. But I always go back and revisit the guys that influenced me before, and then I want to see how they're going to influence me again. Like, I, you know, case in point, I was just talking about Fishbone. I, I listen to Give a Monkey a Brain Ooh. differently than... Than the way I listened to it when the album first came out. Right. So I picked up little nuances and things down. I'm like, oh shit, I never even heard that. <laughs> you know, listening to this record for so many years, and that's so why I, like, I go back and revisit things. I was going back, going back and listening to some old police records the other day. Found this other weird Stuart Copeland film that I never heard before. I'm like, stealing that, going to use that for something. But there's a lot of great drummers that are out now, too. I mean, you mentioned Dillinger Escape Plan, and Billy Reimer, not only is it, he's a great guy, but he's a amazing drummer right um and basically anybody who's ever played in that band is an amazing drummer <laughs> pretty much you gotta be you know um matt garska is uh, from animals as leaders is like probably like he's he's the dude now like just like everybody's just like holy shit myself included i saw him play at the problem party a couple of years ago at damn and i was just like oh my god <laughs> 26? What? <laughs> <Damn> it. <laughs> you know what? The thing, it's funny too, because when I listen to them, um, I actually like the way his drums are recorded. That's, that's like my big thing with him. For some reason, the, the, whoever they, their producer is, uh, the way their drums sound on record uh, is amazing to me. My guess is I bet you anything they're one of those bands that does it themselves. Right. Well, that's smart of them because it, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Now, what is your? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I have a question for you. How was that festival you played last weekend? Oh man, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome because uh, two of my favorite bands were on that bill, which are uh, Hatebreed and Dillinger, and uh, they were all nice people. They were all a lot of fun. Um, the guitar player Ben Wyman came out and watched our set and he was like you guys are awesome so it, that whole thing just made my day it was a lot of fun good 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 yeah the hatebreed guys are uh they're they're longtime friends man we we go back a, a long ways yeah he actually the singer uh there's a friend of mine that that just had a double mastectomy and the singer uh jamie was real cool i asked him to shoot a video just saying you know hope you get better soon and he just, you know, hey, yeah, sure, I'll do it right off the spot. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, no, he's a good dude, man. He's he's another one of those. Him and Corey Taylor, you know, two two front men that if they wanted to could be, you know, egotistical. They're both just fucking great, awesome people. <laughs> uh, now, real quick, before I let you go, uh, what I always like to do is have guys shout out their, their sponsors and endorsees if you can. Absolutely. 
<laughs> All right, man. Give me your drum, people. Who who's got your back? Uh, the fine people, <laughs> the fine fine people at Pearl Drums, Zildjian Cymbals, Remo Drumheads, DW Pedals, and Latin Percussion. Nice. Uh, Gator Drum Cases, and uh, I think soon to be Westone In Ear Monitors as well. And I have a my good friend Graham at a company called Maxonics that makes this cool little stick holder. And lastly, my friend Jim at Drumart that makes all the lovely logo heads. Right on. Whatever band I'm playing in the, the nice, the cool-looking front heads. Cool, man. Now, outside of that, uh, you are available, it sounds like, for lessons, too. Is that kind of a public thing, or you just kind of take on uh, certain students? Oh, no, that's definitely a public thing. I, I do, you know, obviously live lessons if you're in upstate New York and you're, you're here, that, that's, um, but I do a lot of Skype lessons as well. You know, I've got, I've got students in three different countries right now, so that's really, really, really cool. And that's a soft thing, my, 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 my web, my web uh, I can't even spit it out. My website, <laughs> my website which is jasonbecker.com. You just go to the lessons page. And they can contact you from there? Yep, yep, it goes directly to my, my email. Absolutely. All right, man, well. I, I just uh, joined up, too, on this thing called Met, uh, Metal for Hire. It's a new uh, new website that just, just came out. It's got a whole bunch of uh, various people from the metal community that are that are available to you know play on records and tour and do sessions and produce and whatever it is that they're available to do it's all on the, on the website I think it's called metalforhire.com wow I have I gotta go check that out I have never even heard of that it just just opened this week oh cool alright so uh, for uh, people interested there's jasonbittner.com and there's also metalforhire.com did I get that right yes you did Okay, is that, uh, when you say metal for hire, is it that goofy crap with the metal with the number four, or is it actually F-O-R? It's, it's F-O-R. Okay, good. All right, man, well, I want to thank you again for sparing the time, because it sounds like you, your plate's full. Uh, I know we, we worked a long time to make this happen, and I definitely yeah, appreciate it. Oh, man, it's done, so it doesn't matter now. Good, good, good. All right, this is Rod from the Rodcast again with Jason Bittner. We are signing off, and thank you so much, all of you out there, for listening to this interview. Take care and peace.
folks, it looks like that will wrap it up for this edition of the Rodcast. Uh, sorry it took so long to get this uh, one for 2015 going, but I can tell you this, you will not wait that long for the next one, and we will have some more good interviews coming up. So thank you for your support. Uh, again, if you go to our SoundCloud page, you'll find information there about how to donate to the Rodcast uh, to offset some of the expenses we have to keep it going because we really want to deliver more content. Uh, there's a lot more we want to do, but right now we just can't do it. Not enough cash. So if you're interested in that, uh, check that out. You can email uh, Rodcore at year of the dragon 2012 at gmail.com again year of the dragon as if one word year of the dragon 2012 at gmail.com uh, for questions information uh, interview suggestions uh, and donations for the broadcast so anything you want just hit me up all right folks be good to each other uh, take care and be well. This has been another edition of the Rodcast. Yeah, my-
I'm up front with it. When I spit, I come blunt with it. This chick asked to use my celly, what she want with it? She riding ones in the rim like a bump hit it. So the gentleman that I am, I told her, come get it. Now she showing G-string tan lines. 20 degrees in the D, she out her damn mind. But that don't mean she not fine. And her best friends wearing lace, pretty face like Tracy Edmonds. Figure she be the one with all the crazy questions. Like, where I work and do I have any investments? I didn't simp. I said I've been around pimps. Don't trip if you see me in some rollers or crimps. That's when she said she had some hemp and she want to get bent. What well, I was more than a hint, I'll let you know how I went. We did the damn thing, boy, and was it ever intense? Sex and smoke with a stick of incense. The sex and business party smoke. 